Welcome to the Critical Media Studies Podcast. We're your hosts, Mike Rapici and Barry Falk. Hey, Barry, good morning. How are you doing? I am doing fine, Michael. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing okay. Thank you very much. Uh, today, We're both in our offices. And, it's, uh, it's very official feeling today. Feeling um, official and corporate as we talk about uh, Marxism and other things. Yeah, today is uh, Stuart Hall. And so we are going to be talking about his uh, essay, Encoding and Decoding, which is an oldie but a goodie. This is 1980. Um, and the thinking here was to look at this and really see how it holds up and how it may still be useful. I know that in um, some of the communication courses I teach, we really, I start with the idea of encoding and decoding and just talking about how language works. And so I think that the plan today, if we follow the plan, is going to be to take his ideas and map them onto the contemporary digitized media landscape. And so that's what you meant by relevant, that we're going to talk about the ways in which these ideas pass over or don't to like the online world, digital yeah. culture. Media yeah. Um, Michael, am I right to think? I seem to have recalled this and maybe we talked about it. This is, um, you're talking about, you use this as a foundational, as an important text in communication classes. Am I right to think that this is, this is specifically a key text in television studies? Um, I think it should be if it's not, you know, I, again, that's, that's sort of outside of my uh, wheelhouse, but um, his idea of media like McLuhan, I mean, I'm just saying, I, I'm saying that because like McLuhan, mm -hmm. I have to mention him I have to mention here him. And, and I'm going to mention him again. Don't worry. Don't worry, fans. <laughs> we're, we're going to get there again. But um, like McLuhan, when he's talking about media in here, he seems to be mostly talking. And, and the, the whole model of encoding, oh. encoding is from, from television programming, television broadcasting, and things like that. Yeah, I think that that's that, okay. Okay. Yeah. That's certainly his focus uh, in the article. Um, I, you know, it, it's funny because one of the things that we're going to get to is what has 40 years done to this. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, I don't know, maybe that's a, a, a bad omen. I didn't even realize we were, <laughs> it's my fault. Um, yes, I, I think that it would certainly be relevant for broadcasting. However, um, mm -hmm. one of the arguments I hope to make in the next hour or so mm -hmm. is that the you're idea- Don't undersell yourself. From what I understand, you're going to shatter that paradigm. I'm just mentioning that as a background. Yeah, well- as a background guy, I'm just mentioning that- and it reminded me of McLuhan. Hall reminds me of McLuhan in that he's talking about media, but he means television. And that's kind of famously true of mm -hmm. McLuhan. Mm -hmm. he, you know, he's aware of radio. He's aware it's of thing. 19th century. Uh, he's aware that there are, you know, satellite communication. He's aware of other things. He's even aware of computers. But when he talks about media and its effects, he's really thinking about television. Yeah. So yeah. that way, this the Hall seems to be part of that moment. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. Do you, um, you should we get started? We could. We could. Okay. Uh, and I'm just going to continue in my uh, designated role as background man and say two things about the, I mean, there are many things that could be said. If we had uh, a three hour episode, God help us, 
God help everyone. God save everyone. If we had a three-hour episode on Hall, we could, you know, dilate a lot more on the intellectual context because I don't think we're going to talk about it. I'm not going to talk about it. I don't think I don't think it will happen much in what you told me about your discourse on it and what you want to use use the essay to say. But there's obviously a way in which this. Uh, this essay is impossible to imagine without Roland Barthes, mm-hmm. the structural moment. And in particular, Bar- and we talked about Roland Barthes before, um, he, uh, Hall, even though he's talking about television, Hall is really interested and, and informed, rather, by Barthes' semiotic reading of photographic images, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the idea of decoding the photographic image, especially right. as it is in advertising. That's, that's, you know, it's hard to imagine this essay without, but, uh, but I mentioned that to say that I'm not going to talk about right here. And when I talk about the context, I, I'm just going to bring up two sort of two other intellectual forces or um, two other intellectual history of, I'm just going to talk about the history of ideas, two other things that seem to be informing a uh, hall and kind of set the, the, the bar for hall or you know, the foundation of his ideas. There's a McLuhan moment uh, early in the essay. Is this about uh, three paragraphs in? Do you want to screen share? Or, yeah, let me, uh, I can, I can, I can, no, I, I can pull it up. Let me get this. So those of you watching along on YouTube have something to read. Here we go. Something to read and you don't have to look at me. It's awesome. Yeah, we, awesome. This is the best thing about media. Forget every other aspect of media. This is what matters. So it's a paragraph. It's pretty early on. This is thus while in no way. Oh, hell yeah. There we go. We got it. We got it. Just wanted to read this brief bit of it. Thus while in no way wanting to limit research to following only those leads which emerge from content analysis, we must recognize that the discursive form of the message, the form of the message, Already we're getting a little McLuhan tingly here. The form of the message, ooh, could the medium be the message? Might be. (laughs) Could the discursive form of the message has a privileged position in the communicative, communicative exchange? And then the moments of encoding and decoding, though only relatively autonomous. In other words, and in fact, here we see a little, you know, there's, the shadow of McLuhan or the ghost of McLuhan, um, the specter of McLuhan, sort of haunting this paragraph. But note, he brings him up, he engages him, but he slightly um, breaks from McLuhan because the medium isn't the message, right? Mm-hmm. The medium is relatively autonomous. All, all Hall will say is that the message is, uh, the medium is a thing. It exists as a relatively autonomous element in relation to the communicative process as a whole, which constitutes determinant moments. You're going to talk a little bit about what that means. So I won't bother. Yeah. But I think, I think maybe let's take a second to sort of just take a look at this, right? Sure. As I understand this, what he's doing is granting, like if we look at the message as, you know, from uh, its conception to its re- reception, right? What Hall is doing that McLuhan doesn't is he's including the decoding process uh, 
of the person who is receiving and interpreting the message into the equation. And McLuhan doesn't really spend any time talking about that. Well, my friend, that's a wily idea. That's a very interesting idea. Let me ask you a further question. We won't dilate too much further. No. We need to go to Marx and, uh, from this, but uh, that's a very provocative point. And I wanted to quick follow up. Do you think in a sense that McLuhan should be faulted for not thinking? I mean, this essay, as you just said, it is thinking about the reception side. It's thinking about how people, how audiences decode messages. Is this, a, you know, you're, you're correctly noting, this is a point of difference between Hall and McLuhan, even though he, I believe he's invoking him here. Are you also, do you also think that this is a genuine fault of McLuhan? McLuhan? his ideas i mean he doesn't seem i mean McLuhan is the master decoder right mm -hmm. uh, he's the decoder of media messages that we need to pay attention to whereas hall is kind of democratizing the process or realizes that there are a lot of decoders uh that are decoding the encoded message of television or broadcast i don't know do you want to I, I mean i mean should is this a criticism no, but I, I think it's an I think it's an interesting question because it's it's an orienting question, uh, at least in terms of the way I'm going to answer it. I don't think that Hall and McLuhan are doing the same thing, right? I think that I think that McLuhan is looking at this new yeah. social phenomenon and his art, you know, which is television in the home broadcast yeah, television yeah. in the home yeah. we've moved beyond the radio we now have images and so i think that his 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 mission his job his goal is really to sort of contextualize what this new medium is you know hall is what 20 years on right was mcclune was the 60s yeah. okay so this has become normalizing we're still in terms of mass adoption, a little bit before the advent of cable television in every home. So we still have, you know, just that, that corset of networks. So he's dealing in, in many ways with something similar, but I think that his, his purpose is different. He's not. I agree. Yeah. I don't think they're the same. I wouldn't fault McClune for that. Cause I don't think he's got the same job. I, I got no, no. And, and that's going to lead to my second final second and final point, which is that the, the mentor here, the really foundational ideas that Hall is working with are, are Marxist ideas. Mm -hmm. And also we have to give Raymond Williams a, a name check because that's another uh, the Marx. I mean, what Hall I think is specifically mm -hmm. doing um, we have to mention this, is that he's intentionally aligning himself with, um, he's following up and trying to complete the work or further the work of Raymond Williams, mm -hmm. who was writing about television and media in the 50s and 60s, right? So, you know, that's really Hall's point of orientation. And we'll get to there in a second, but just one last, another place where I feel that McLuhan is here, but as you rightly say, um, um, so like McLuhan represents an atmosphere, right? They, they, okay. there, there's yes. a kind of climate of opinion, which he is gesturing, which Hall is gesturing to here that, um, you know, that he doesn't have to mention McLuhan. He's just sort of assimilated 
um, McLuhan's idea as a part of the climate of opinion. Okay, last point, Mes message form. This is, seems the concession to the idea that the medium is a message. The message form is the necessary form of appearance of the televisual event in its passage from source to receiver. Uh, Michael, as you said, um, what, what Hall is really interested in is this last part of the sentence. Um, and maybe McLuhan isn't as interested mm -hmm. in it, as you also mm -hmm. say. The passage of the message form from source to receiver. Right. Okay, so get, hit me with the other page, next page, and then we can get out of context. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That paragraph, you're right there. Well, you have to scroll down just a little bit because I'm going to go to the middle of the paragraph. Okay. This is where he brings up something you're going to talk about uh, with greater, what's the word, with, uh, you're going to expand on more than I am. Uh, but this is one of the places where, this is a, one of the places where Hall um, begins to articulate his notion of production. Right. That's central to the essay. And that's central to this process of encoding and decoding, central part of the process of encoding and decoding that you're going to talk about in a moment. And he uses the metaphor of production. So uh, could you go, oh, I made you go a little bit too far down. I'll pick it up just a little bit further up, just a little bit further up. And then I'm going to move to Philip Elliott, if you can see it. Okay, yeah, production here. Um, in the television, he's still talking about the televisual image that he's going to argue is encoded and decoded by audiences. Production here constructs the message. But his point is that, uh, let's see if I can give you a, a quick summary of the point. Where so he's you're, you're, get... you're, you're right here. This uh... Yeah, production oh, here constructs the message. But I'm going to... I'm going to try to summarize the point of this paragraph very briefly and then move to Philip Elliott to sort of point it out. The larger point of this paragraph in this section is that he wants to say, because production matters, okay, because production matters, I'm going to talk a little bit further in this essay. I'm going to talk a lot about decoding mm -hmm. and how audiences can take control of the visual and audio image that they receive on television. But one of the points I want to make, and this is in keeping with the Marxist notion of production, that economic and social forces are in the last instance determining the production of a message, that a message is produced. And in a sense, because messages are produced, because a television image is produced, we can't fully separate it from the capitalist mode of production, right? That's right. the big Marxist idea here. And so one of the things he wants to emphasize is the media image is produced. And the whole point of this paragraph is, you know, I'm gonna, he's sort of uh, setting the stage for later. He does not want to say that there's anarchy here. As soon as the televisual image is led upon the world because of the power of decoding that you're gonna talk about, People can just like run license. No, he wants to. And in this, he's trying to be faithful to the Marxist tradition that says modes of production are central. Um, he wants to argue, he's arguing in fact, that something really vital and important happens to limit the message, 
to limit and constrain how a message can be decoded, no matter how productive or, or in, you know, how much license audiences have. There is, uh, the mode of production is a determining instance. And, and, uh, and I'll, just, I'll, I'll, I'll stop it here, but, you know, I don't know if the, I think that I, I fear I'm clear as mud. So I'm, I think we probably need to do a clarifying question from you, but I'll yeah. just end with this. Go ahead. Uh, so Philip Elliott has expressed his point succinctly within a more traditional framework in his discussion of the way in which the audience is both the source and the receiver of the television message. That last bit is, again, <clears throat> Hall is pointing out that, hey, production matters. The decoding part of the encoding, decoding thing, it matters. Thus, to borrow Marx's term, circulation and reception are indeed moments. The consumption and, or reception of the television message is a moment, but the production process in this larger sense is predominant. So anyway, production and reception of the television message are therefore not identical, but they are related. Right. And so furthermore, let me... one is what the reception is constrained in many ways by the production. So let, maybe let that got you... a little bit clearer there, but if not, let me. Well, let me ask you a question about yeah, this. Sure. Just, just to clarify this. So yeah, he goes yeah. on in a bit at length to say, you know, that the, the televised event is yeah. not the event, right? right? So you're watching, uh, I don't know, an inauguration on television. You are not watching. Right. And this right. is where this is where I think the overlap with McLuhan right. comes into play, right? You are not watching the inauguration. You are watching the televised inauguration. So yeah. when he talks about the production of an event, and I want to get into, because he's got to, just to, just to fully orient everybody here, um, Mc, or McLuhan, whoops. Um, McLuhan. <laughs> Hall, Hall sees Hall sees this as a five one yeah five stage process that works as a circuit where stage five in, in, informs stage one right mm-hmm. um, and and so those those stages are starting with you know at I guess at his beginning production circulation distribution consumption reproduction back to production and so when we talk about the production of a message one of the things that separates McLuhan and his model from Hall's model is McLuhan was looking at the media environment, whereas Hall Mm -hmm. is less concerned with the environment as a discrete thing. He is more concerned with the message creation interpretation production, the production of the message. Right. And so that's where I wanted to start with this. I think is when we talk about the production of the message, maybe it's helpful to think about what we mean by production, because I I think at first blush, this is like, okay, is this the technological voodoo that happens to create something? And that's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about- It's part of what he's talking about, but not the, not, not the totality, I think. No. So let's fill in the blanks. What, 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 how do you understand what he means by production? Well, I'm, I'm going to try to answer that question briefly by reference to what he talks about when he, at the very end of the essay, when he talks about television professionals, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that he assumes um, he assumes that television, mm-hmm. like anything else in professional, you know, professionals matter in the division of labor in a capitalist society. 
And that's another way in which uh, Hall's Marxist framework sort of shapes the essay. And so he believes in something like a television professional. The job of the television professional is to make a broadcast, to broadcast messages. And so not only are they taking control of the technological aspect of it, mm -hmm. uh, but they're also inscribing it with their own language and their own perspective. So, so I, I guess we're saying that their ideas or ideology, however you characterize it, um, their perspectives on, on the topic they're covering, uh, they're part of what's reproduced through or produced through the technology. Is that, is that helping answer that? I is think that so. I, I think so, because you know the, the essay is entitled Encoding and Decoding, right? And I think what he's talking about in terms of encoding and decoding are really sort of the, the poles of this process in a way. And so if we look at what he calls production, this is the process of encoding. This is the process of assigning language right. and assigning images, assigning, uh, you know, creating basically the, the shell and then the contents of the shell that hold this message, if I can use that, that metaphor for this. So um, what I wanted to talk about with this, as, as I read this essay, I was thinking, okay, as we sit here and record this now, this essay is 42, 43 years old. And he's looking at this televisual moment, uh, piggybacking on McLuhan, but then going in a different direction. And I was struck by, and, and I, I use this term sort of, I don't have a good, good, good way of explaining this other than to say the simplicity of his model when we lay it over top of what the current media landscape and the current means of consuming television are, right? Um, and so what I wanted to talk about, so what initially struck me about this and what has stayed with me as I've been thinking it over for the past week is that his model works in a way, but it's not applicable without a considerable bit of updating. And I think that if we, like when he's writing this, we have what, three networks, four networks? There is no and cable television. Mostly, he is mostly thinking about the British, the BBC, right? His, it's, 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 it's mostly it's, thinking about the BBC. And right. What, there are five or six BBC radio stations, and I don't know how, and, and really only two broadcasting networks. The, the point, the point being, point. I guess what I'm what I'm looking the the the, yeah. the the contradiction in this to today is is that mm -hmm. he's writing with this idea of a dominant stream. In fact, he talks about the terms that jumped out at me mm -hmm. was the idea of the iconic sign uh, and the, the dominant cultural perspective on things. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking like, wow, we don't have that, but we still have media. We still have production. We still have all of the stages that he's talking about, but somewhere the model got broken. And so my my response to this was like okay well where did where and how did the model get broken and is there a connection between that rupture or that break and what we currently see in media consumption and so to to clarify this a little bit the idea for me of a dominant 
well, let's, let's back up before we get to dominant media or, or dominant interpretations of things, you know, this idea of an iconic sign, right? So let me, let me find in the text where this is, and I can, I can bring this back up. In fact, let me, right. let me do it uh, maybe a little, okay. I'm struggling here with my, while you're searching, I'm going to, I'm going to fill. Oh, you found, there we go. Okay. Let me say, uh, let me just say one quick comment though, before you take it away, Maestro, Mm -hmm. uh, you use an interesting word. You were struck by the simplistic nature of, uh, you know, of the environment, uh, that, or the, the media situation that Hall is describing. And I agree. I wonder if another word for simplicity, I think this is what you're going to get at. Um, another word for simplicity is, you know, what you're noticing and calling simplistic is the difference between a centralized media structure. That's fair. And a decentralized, dispersed media structure. I think that's fair. And I think that that's my problem here. Okay. Um, so he talked, let me see, the, the television sign is a complex one. It is. And so, you know, when we're talking about signs, again, I think maybe we have to make sure we're speaking the same language here, right? This is, this is dipping into to semiotics and, and linguistics and sign and signified signifier and, and, and all that. But basically the, the idea that, that Hall is playing with is that language is a tool, language and, and, and in his case, also images, right? are tools used to represent the real lived experience, that there's a space between the way that we encode these experiences and the experiences themselves. Would you say that's fair? Is that a- It is fair. I'm only smiling because this paragraph has my favorite sentence in the, uh, uh, you know, to illustrate what you just said, this uh, paragraph has my favorite sentence uh, uh, in in the essay. And it illustrates directly what you said. The dog in the film can bark. So I don't even know where that is. So there's a real reality, but it's what you were saying. Reality yeah. exists outside language, as he also continues to say. But there is, you know, this is part of his structuralist moment, like you were pointing out. There is a specificity to, to the image of the dog. Mm-hmm. Well, so here, here's where I was going with this, right? He says here, um, the television sign is a complex one. It is itself constituted by the combination of two types of discourse, visual and oral. Moreover, it is an iconic sign in Pierce's terminology because it possesses some of the properties of the thing represented. And so he's got this idea that there are there is a way to encode in language or in images something that actually has the essence of the thing being encoded. And my interpretation of that is that this essence, the possession of the essence in some way brings us closer to the real and is therefore more reliable. And again, what struck me was the fact that we seem to exist in a a media moment now where the idea of reliable across a cultural landscape is just anathema to the world we're in, right? There isn't Nothing is reliable. There is no trust in the legitimacy um, uh, of the language or of the, uh, not the language, excuse me, of the, well, of the media that we, that we consume. And so he goes on and he talks about, let me just use the search function here. 
the dominant interpretations of things. Where was this here? That's predominant. That's not quite what I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. Let's go to the dominant culture. We say dominant. What's that? Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just treading water here. Don't. That's your fine. Connotative codes are not equal among themselves. Any society culture tends, with varying degrees of closure, to impose its classification on the social and cultural and political world. These constitute a dominant cultural order, though it is neither univocal nor or uncontested. This question of the structure of discourses in dominance is a crucial point. The different areas of social life appear to be mapped out into discursive domains, hierarchically organized into dominant or preferred meanings. This really struck me, this idea of a dominant or preferred meaning. Um, if we go, so let me, let me stop there for a second and sort of you know, circle the wagons and, and reorient myself here. Hall identifies five stages to the circuit of, of media production. Production production, circulation, distribution, consumption, and reproduction. Okay. Press that you can do that. Yeah, I'm very good. Um, in 1980, with a dominant media, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Institution, right? A dominant media voice, mm -hmm. whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Those three mm -hmm. are going to largely be controlled by the BBC whomever it is that, that he's referencing, right? Mm -hmm. Consumption and reproduction become sort of the outliers. What's interesting now is if we update this to our mm -hmm. current situation, mm -hmm. anybody, as we are proving at the moment, any two people with a computer can recreate a televisual experience that is international in scope, right? The production, the circulation, the distribution of messages is no longer constrained in, 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 in this Marxist model. It has now become widely available to anybody. This problematizes, as his model says, right? Each of these five steps is independent, but influenced by the but steps next to it. Right. Well, the mass democratization of the production, circulation, distribution problematizes consumption which then in turn affects reproduction, which then in turn feeds back in to the production. And so as I'm reading this and I'm thinking about this, I'm like, wow, how is it that our world, I know YouTube, or excuse me, yeah, YouTube doesn't like it when we drop F-bombs. So I'm going to be careful here. How is it that our world it is so, monetized? Yeah, I don't want that. I'd, I'd like to get monetized to be demonetized. <laughs> um, how is We're it? We're pre-monetized. That's it. We're pre-monetized. How is it? that the democratization of something screws something up? That's the question. Well, what is it screwing up? Well, why are we so fractured now? Why is there such oh, distrust? Oh, you mean the emotional effect, the affect of the dispersal. Yeah. But do you think that dispersal is the problem? You don't think the dispersal is a problem. Michael, let's signal to our, our viewers and listeners. I think we reached the money moment now. We're now going to... We reached the money moment. This is the money moment of the essay. You've just given us the money moment. I do think dominant it's a problem. is no longer the dominant. No, that's the problem. Is yeah. when we have right. given when everybody has a voice, right? What do you get? I mean, I feel like we the the, the it is now no longer a case of the dominant okay. voice. It, it it is now a case of 
everybody's got a voice. Right. We've totally whitewashed the idea of the dominant. And now all you need is the means of production, circulation, and distribution mm -hmm. to in turn well, access. means, you mean just the technology. Yeah, all you need is the technology right. to access okay. the voice of your choosing. And I got you. I, that's got you. A, I, I think that's a big problem. I, I, I got you. I don't want to interrupt you. Not, I, I think, interrupt. I mean, what do, you, what do you think? So, okay. yeah. I'm just saying that we reached the money moment here. So what do I you don't have it. I have two questions for you. Okay. Uh, and I have partial answer to them, but I think, I think we reached the money moment. You've asked the million dollar question. Okay. So I have a question for you and I have a, maybe I have two questions for you. And I think those two questions for you and our dialogue about those two questions is going to bring this episode to a pleasing whole. Let's hope it's going so. to bring it all together. It's going to be wonderfully unified and in a pleasing totality. Okay, here's the first question. What you pointed out, and I think definitively, and I felt it too, I think any reader, you've done us a service because I think any reader of the essay, thinking about our media moment and looking back at Hall and saying, what the hell? Dominating. We don't have a dominant. What we have is a dispersal. Okay. Could not agree more. And I think that's a very important point. Uh, and that any reader of this essay is going to have to struggle with that or to come to terms with it. Okay. So I have two, I don't know how, I don't know if I have an answer to that question. It's such a great question and such a big one. But I have two follow-up questions that are kind of going to constitute my answer. So the first question I have for you is this dispersal that you're talking about. Is it a, it's, is it a, is it the pharmacon? Is it a good thing and a bad thing? Or is it primarily a bad thing? What you just told me was that it's primarily a negative thing because the dispersal seems to have determined, to use Hall's word, the dispersal seems to have determined our fracture, our social fracture, our siloing. So I guess my first question for you, for us, is is the dispersal a pharmacon or is it just effed up? Are we effed up? I'm gonna say I think that it is unquestionably a pharmacon. Um, because there's value in this, right? Like I think that the positive side of this is that you open the doors wide. And maybe I'm an idealist here but you open the doors for people. I'm with you, brother. Be, be that person. Be that. But, be, but, that. be who but, you are. But the problem is, I think it also invites a measure of laziness in the sense that I, if, if I'm sitting here with a, a single- You're through Oh, I am. My friend. If I'm sitting here with a dominant media, right, that can bring me information that may- enlighten me, it may educate me, but it may also challenge perspectives that I have. I'm forced to engage with that on some level. The problem here, it, and, and we're proving this, right? Like if you are a McLuhan fanboy or a Stiegler fanboy, man, we're your Huckleberry, right? But at the same time, if you're niche. not- It's if, a real small niche. But for, the, for those of you who fit that niche, you're welcome. The people um, who like licorice really like, licorice. but that, and that, but I think that's the point, right? 
is yeah. the problem is every when, when when everything's available, what are you going to go get? You're going to go get your licorice, right? You're not you're you're not going to go challenge. It, it's it's I think it's the rare. It's certainly not the majority, and we need it to be the majority to be wholly productive. That we'll go find challenging perspectives. And the other problem that we have with this, yeah. yes, it's good we have voices, but no, because in having so many voices. What have we done to a dominant interpretation? Mm. What have we done to the idea of a dominant anything at this point? Like, I think that you have a problem when you have a situation like this because you provide a home for radicalism. You have you provide a home for mm. for for everything, right? And there are certain, and this is the tricky thing. There are certain everything's that we don't like. There's certain everything's we don't want. Mm. But you can't. Like, I don't know, I, I guess this, this is sort of like the problem that, that, that Facebook's been hiding or Meta has, has been hiding behind, right? Like, how do we provide a platform for people and then silence the people who do what we think is bad? It's mm -hmm. not our place to be bad. And quite frankly, I think it's a cop-out, but I don't know what that answer is. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think it's a pharmacon. I mean, where, where do you stand on that? Can, can, this, can something be wholly bad? Are we that, are we that depressed and cynical? No, no, I, 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 think, I agree with you that it's a pharmacon, but I have a follow-up. Um question that's going to, and I'll comment on, but I think we're wrapping up here uh, because I think we've reached the, not just the money moment, but we've reached the moment where uh, I'm losing language, right? And, you know, I, I think you pointed out a problem that's really, I mean, the problems you, or, or the problematic, right, that you're describing, it's a kind of structure of problems, a structural problem. Uh, I, I don't know, you know, we're not going to have to address it. We're going to have to worry about it again in another form. But a related question, and you are already saying it, and maybe you're going to think this is stupid, but I would like to hear your answer. I'd like to hear you sort of tell me why this is stupid. Okay, we're talking about the dispersal, uh, the great dispersal that's happened because of technological democratizing of technology to a certain extent talking about the great dispersal and we say the dispersal has fractured a universal has fractured the dominant i was going to ask you this though i have a nagging what if i said to you that we still have a dominant uh that okay you're right the other media studies podcasts where they don't have McLuhan and stiegler fanboys uh, they're different from us. And that's why the, the McLuhan and Stiegler fanboys and girls should come to us, mm -hmm. everybody. Um, but we're not a, you know, there are other things. We, we, we haven't yet been urging the overthrow of the government, the violent takeover of the government. Let's not and chances that. are our competitor, competing podcasts not all of them are doing that either, right? So you have a you have micro niches for sure, but do you really? Isn't that doesn't that constitute a consensus? Are we that sure that there isn't a dominant? Well, are we that sure that radical ideas are indeed minority ideas that are radical? Now you're right. The decentralization allows radical quote unquote views of on any spectrum, a greater prominence than it has certainly was true in Hall's time. But what I'm wondering, and I'm wondering aloud, I don't know the answer to this either, 
but I, you know, that, that that's kind of my final, it's like I said, you know, this is the money moment, but I simply because I'm at the, the limits of my thought, because I wonder whether or not the dispersal has left a form of the dominant intact. Um, let me, are we really then nicheified? Let me point you back to Mr. Hall, because I think he has an answer for this. That is maybe where we want to go. Okay. So I'm going to share the screen again. And for those of you listening, I will read this as well. But he says, <clears throat> so I'm starting here. The dominant definitions, however, are hegemonic precisely because they represent definitions of situations and event which are in dominance, global. Dominant definitions connect events implicitly or explicitly to grand totalizations to the great syntagmatic views of the world. They, get, they take large views of issues. They relate events to the national interest or to the level of geopolitics, even if they make these connections in truncated, inverted, or mystified ways. The definition of a hegemonic viewpoint is, A, that it defines within its terms the mental horizon, the universe of possible okay. meanings of a whole sector of relationships in a society or culture. B, and this is the important one, that it carries with it the stamp of legitimacy. It appears coterminous mm. with what is natural, inevitable, taken for granted about the social order. Okay, so if we think about that, yes, it's entirely possible that you have a measure of confluence among voices, right? Mm -hmm. However, we are still going to privilege the voices we like over the privileges, or excuse me, over the voices that we like less. So while we can all agree about particular things, if it works out that way, mm. there is still the question of legitimacy. Mm -hmm. And when you have a multitude of voices, you are going to grant legitimacy to those voices you like best. And when they happen to say the same things, that's great. We have a dominant view, right? So we can all agree, for example, that, I don't know, apple pie tastes good and we have consensus and that's great. And it's a dominant view. Okay. But the second somebody says, look, apple pie tastes good, but it's bad for, bad you. for you. It's bad for you. Well, those voices that we grant legitimacy to that say it's bad for you are now going to give us that off-ramp of the dominant and say, well, all those people who are still enjoying their apple pie don't understand. They don't know as well. And what this, so what this whole, this idea of the dominant and what, what the dispersal, as you're calling it, which I love that term, is doing is it is really creating a situation where we get to choose our version of the right, mm -hmm. the correct. And what's happened is, that we're all speaking the same language. We're all using the same signs, right? The same words, but we have now opened up a series of fissures whereby we can be correct and disagree with the mass because our camps look they look complete to us, right? If you tune into this podcast and you listen to the two of us talk, and this is where you get your information on media studies. 
then this is what is. Mm -hmm. And if there are bigger, more popular, more visible, more dominant voices out there, you don't have to hear them, right? So the question, and this is back to the Pharmacon again, I think that the question of access, the democratization of media has also led to a sort of an unnatural leveling of media where voices that shouldn't have the, uh, you know, the power behind them suddenly have a means of representing or presenting themselves, I should say, as maybe more authentic or legitimate than they should. So I don't know. I mean, let me, let me throw the question back at you. If we look at this and the question of dominant in terms of perceived legitimacy, what do you think? Is this? I think, well, I mean, well, I'm going to throw the question back at you uh, or to both of us. You may, maybe you already did this with your apple pie example, but I was about to say this. Um, is cap what if I, uh, what I'll make the statement capitalism is a bad thing? Is that a dominant view or not? Is your answer to that okay? I'm going to try to answer that in the way don't answer that because I'm going to try to answer it in the terms that I think you are outlining. Okay, so let's do a view. I guess I'm going to follow your apple pie moment. Um, I'll take a statement about a political statement. Capitalism is a bad thing. If I say that, is it a dominant view? As I understand what you're saying, is that because of a, a different kind of consciousness among media users, among podcast listeners, there, there are more people who are willing to say, Oh, you know, um, to respect that opinion than say previously, that might be one thing you're saying. But I, I think you're also saying, if I understand you correctly, that, the, that it isn't CBS or NBC or a, a broadcast network that, uh, or Fox, I think you're, let me, you know, Fox complicates it, but let me try. It, I don't think it does that. I, keep going. Well, yeah, let me, I, I'm trying to answer this in your terms to make sure I understand your terms. What you're saying is, okay, I'm presented with a statement. Capitalism is a bad thing. And you're saying, I no longer think of uh, a single determinate source, media source, and then refer to it. I'm probably listen and refer to it and then check that statement for accuracy against my previous knowledge of a central media source. Instead, you say, chances are I'm going to respond to that as a truism and respect it as a universal truth in regard to the other podcasts I'm listening to. So are you, so that seems to be the dynamic that I'm getting my cues from other things, other media sources that I'm listening to because there is a plethora. There's no mm -hmm. longer uh, a limited to a handful um, authority, set of authoritative media sources. So what's your, so if I understand it, you're answering the question about whether or not there's a dominant and you're saying there's not a dominant, there's a dispersal. You're saying that no, the dominant is not recreated because we are answering find the truths of claim made in media. We're checking their accuracy against our other media, against other media sources. And depending on those media sources, 
we're going to respond to that statement. We're going to decode that statement. Is it truth or not? I, I think we're close. Let me, let me try it this way. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I'm trying to understand yeah. what you, you, you know, like what is, what's replaced the determining so he, instance. Okay. What's so the determining, I think that there is without a question, a dominant dialogue. So let me get away from apple pie or capitalism for a second. Okay. Let's say that our dominant question is, was January, were, were the riots of January 6th, the criminal moment? Okay. Um, that's a discussion that's being had. Now, the discussion specifically on that is going to be had on multiple channels or through multiple channels. If you identify that as a... Okay, you are saying... Yeah, so... Okay. Um, I apologize for the technical difficulties there. Uh, we're back. Um, anyways, um, we're talking about the dominant voice and whether or not there is such a thing. And I think that the way I would probably try and respond to that is to say that I think there is a dominant discussion or there are a series of dominant discussions that take place. The problem is, again, with Hall, we're looking at the entire circuit. So we're looking at the production, the encoding process, everything else. But we're also looking, unlike with McLuhan, we're looking at the decoding of this. And that decoding happens with the dialogues that take place around it. And what's happened, so let me, the, the example I would give is like the January 6th uh, insurrection, all right? There is a dialogue around this. Everybody in this country is having this dialogue. The question that we come up against is, was that a criminal event or not, right? Was this patriotic or was this, uh, insurrection. And this is where the encoding and the decoding, I think, has to take central stage. This is what McLuhan did not do, but this is what Hall is talking about. The problem is that when we have a media environment such as the one that we do, where any Yahoo can have a podcast, right? There are a million voices to this. Right. What happens is we tune in to the voices that support that we like, we, we, so where do we grant authenticity or legitimacy? Right. And this creates this in, in a way, this takes the dominant voice and recodes it. Right. And so it. when we come back around to the means of production again, right. The decoding of the dominant helps to inform the encoding and shape it, it shapes the dominant. And so, um, you know, as much as this works on the plus side of things where we say, yes, these are problematic, lawless acts that need to be, you know, need to be resisted. Um, we suddenly have as many voices on the other side saying, man, this is the new face of, or not the new face. This is the face of patriotism. Um, and those voices of reason now become opposition. Um, I, I love your answer. Un unfortunately, I think we have a kind of grim conclusion for this episode because what you just described is the kind of final triumph of consumerism. I, I may, and I hope I'm wrong on this, so maybe I shouldn't describe it the final triumph, but certainly what you're describing is a triumph of consumerism in that what's really shaping the decoding is my consumer preferences. So I have these set of consumer preferences regarding the news, regarding music, 
regarding politics, regarding what have you. And they determine my media intake, the decoding. And eventually, as you brilliantly point out, <laughs> Pache Hall, uh, they eventually kind of have a feedback loop and they affect the producers. They, they affect the production moment. Well, I'm thinking right now, CNN and it's right or turn. I, I, so it's funny because I see that, but to, to broaden this just a second, so we can shut it down. Think of Spotify, right? How do we listen to the radio now? We don't, we don't listen to the radio. No. We tell the radio what to give us. And I guarantee it's you, yeah, it yeah, is. Exactly. And, 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 and those, those numbers, those preferences are available to the people who are recording the music because they get paid by them. So it's a, it's a, it's a perfect, it's a perfect example of that. I think, yeah, we're, it, it's bleak. Um, but I also suspect that it's bleak because it's the moment we're in and, you know, I'm going to channel my, um, inner optimism here and say the, 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 the machine will adapt. We are both going to channel our inner Stiegler and show and think about morale, you know, moral and intellectual fiber. Uh, we're going to apply moral and intellectual fiber as we <laughs> proceed ahead. As we so, sojourn the, on in the, the digital world. The takeaway is that we need more fiber. We need that's, more that's, that's, that's the answer for myself, Michael. Not I won't. I won't speak for you. But. <sighs> Uh, oh, I, th I think we're I think we're more than done. Like, I think so. All right. Well, Barry, as always, uh, thank you for the discussion. To those of you who are uh, listening or watching, thank you. Please do subscribe, like, share, pass it on. Um, if you have questions, if you have thoughts, we'd love to hear from you. There's a comment section underneath the video. Uh, you can email us at our website, uh, criticalmediastudiespodcast.com. And uh, I think that's it, right? That's that's the thanks to our uh, new fans and listeners. I just got a Facebook message from Chaz Williams, <laughs> and we'll be responding to it in some fashion. Soon. Thanks, Chaz. All right. Well, Barry, be well, um, and uh, we'll talk soon. Talk soon. All right. Thanks for listening to the Critical Media Studies podcast. To find out more about the show, check out our webpage at criticalmediastudiespodcast.com. Thank you.